0: Alright then, good stuff. So let me go ahead and put you on full screen. And actually what I'll do is I'll just change the settings so that you can you can share your screen as well, Andrew. Yeah, cool. So there you go.
2: Okay. The mic. is my friend. Can you see the room? Because I think it's very nice if you can see everybody. Maybe yeah, I can. It d- it definitely helps. Um, there we are. Right, love lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. Right. Let me just share screen (laughs) and then we need to do that. Uh, can everybody see that? Yes, and everyone can hear me? Yes, fantastic. Well, look, um, thanks a lot, James. I mean, I don't know if you want to give any kind of preamble or about what you know the the group, what everybody wants to achieve, but uh, before, I mean. I've prepared a very first principles deck about, you know, our views on investment and the, and the real kind of fundamentals around investment and what I often describe as the, the most important investment theme in the whole of human history, which is human progress. Um, and so that's what I've put up here on screen. It's about, I think it's about 20 slides long. I can do it in about 20 to 30 minutes. I'm very happy to keep this as informal as you like. So if you have any questions, please just jump in and ask them whenever you like um, but James, I don't know, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm not I know the audience are all in, in a certain industry. Um, but I want to be I want it would be useful, perhaps to sort of understand the level of, you know, I'm assuming that everybody's actually quite sophisticated when it comes to investment. Um, uh, but you know, either way, I'll, I'll always want to go back to or is that not a safe assumption?
0: Every, lots of people have read your book, Andrew, and Brilliant. also as well as that, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this program is centered around your book, so there is definitely a good level of pre-understanding there. I had a look, put it like this: I looked, I looked at the deck that you sent me last night, and it was perfect. So what you have is spot on.
2: Okay, great. Well, look, I'll I'll just trot through it and just sort of preemptive apologies because people who have read the book, or maybe if you've seen me speak before, and of course James interviewed me for Dentist to Invest a while ago, and I and I do. Um, use a lot of the same themes again and again and again, but I use this slightly cheesy uh, Latin phrase "repetitio mater studiorum est," which means you know, learning is the sorry, repetition is the mother of learning, right? So I think what, what, it's very easy in life generally to learn stuff and then not actually apply it. And so part of the reason that we we um, repeat our message a lot uh, across lots of different sort of media channels and stuff, and obviously through my books, is because understanding what I'm about to present is only sort of probably a third of the battle. Two thirds of the battle is, is, is reiterating it and getting to the point where you actually take action and it changes your life. So, so here you go. So I'm going to talk about owning the world. And as I say, the importance of human progress. And as I say, please do leap in because we're FCA regulated. I'm obliged to put that up at night. So give me a show of hands when you've all read it. (laughs) Sorry, I'm only joking. You don't have to read it. It, um, It's there. It's there because it's supposed to be by law. So, um, you know, just to kick off big picture. So why, why does our company, Planings Finance, exist? Why do we have this? Why do I do what I want to do? And it's, it's a little bit sort of a Californian and West Coast Americans have a kind of mission statement about what you do. But we mean it. Um, and we've been walking this walk for the best part of a decade now. And so everything we do is about improving the financial affairs of as many people as possible. And basically, the vector through which we want to do that, uh, I, can now, I can now see James's head um, oh, it's, <laughs> what a beautiful
0: site i'm seeing yeah. if i can make this screen any bigger but i think that's uh, as big as it gets
2: okay well uh, i can share i can share the pdf of this afterwards by the way of no, it's it's i've actually uh just made it bigger there so we're good just to help okay. you cool um and you know so so what is so how do you make people's financial affairs better well the, the number one vector for that is it's all about financial literacy and and you know, this seems like quite an obvious statement that, that the financial literacy is, is very, very poor, even in the developed world where we have, you know, ICEs and pensions and whatever else. And but throughout the whole world it, it's it's really, really bad. Um and that has serious you know ramifications for society and for individuals. And so our mission is to improve that. Um And, you know, as so I was very lucky to meet this guy, actually, Mark Shipman, the guy I've put a quote here. I met him at a a U2 concert of all places uh, a few years ago, just quite by chance. And I I realized he he said, oh, my name's Mark. And his friend said, I'm a financial author. And I said, you're not Mark Shipman, are you? Which was quite a a nice moment because I'd quoted him at the beginning of my book. But this quote, I think, is a really instructive one. And he says there's an essential skill, life skill, that's never been and still isn't taught to the masses how to manage, control and invest money to protect and provide for your financial future. And I know that James and I are very sort of aligned in, in that kind of statement. Does that resonate with people, you know, whether it's from school or even, you know, you can get, I've got an economics degree from a good British university and and that gives you no practical practical knowledge of any of this stuff around actually the nuts and bolts of investment. So, So why is it important? Well, I, I would contend parking Ukraine or the cost of living crisis, which is part part of this problem in in many ways, poor financial literacy is nothing less than one of the world's very biggest problems because it's the reason that so many people struggle financially. Um, and, you know, the reason that so many people struggle financially, again, it seems really obvious, is because they've never learned enough or in, in many cases for a large percent of the population, anything at all about financial markets. And that's a tragedy because... People on even only average incomes who understand financial markets can realistically aspire to become millionaires over time, and an awful lot do. And there's a really famous book, which I'm sure some of you will have read or be aware of, called The Millionaire Next Door, um, which is in a very American-centric book. But it basically it shows empirically that the, va- the, the very significant majority of millionaires in America are not people who've had enormously high incomes or pop stars or whatever else movie stars they're just normal people who know about financial markets and particularly property and and the stock market right um and then the other end of the spectrum as an example of how this is all about financial literacy and there are there are are the examples of people who've been on huge incomes or you know earned a vast amount of money who are bankrupt or otherwise really significantly challenged financially um is is our legion there are there—it's very very easy to find examples so 70% 70% of people who win the lottery are bankrupt within five years of winning the lottery, which I always think is just an astonishing stat. How can you win $50 million or 50 million euros or pounds or whatever and then be bankrupt five years later because you're financially illiterate? And, and you know, if you win that kind of sum or ever make that kind of sum, you should be set for life, indeed, with a much lower sum. Uh, and a couple of other examples, you know, 150 ex-premiership footballers are in prison most of them because they turned to crime to sustain the earnings and the lifestyle that they had as a premiership footballer when they were forced you know forced to retire at a relatively young age um and that's tra- and that's tragic because so many of them make such poor decisions about investment and finance at, at a time in their lives when they're making 50 grand a week maybe similarly in america the average nfl player makes seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year the average nfl player quarterbacks obviously make a lot more and but uh, 80% of retired NFL players are broke, or go bankrupt, which is just, you know, um, and then loads of bankrupt of celebs, Karen Millen, you know, Boris Becker was bankrupt and then lied about it and is in prison, you know, having won tens of millions of prize money in his life. George Best and his son Callum Best. So that's a good example of how these things run in families. You know, you, you can you can run financial literacy in fa- families or you can run financial illiteracy in families and lots of other examples, including, you know, Sarah Ferguson, who's part of the royal family. <laughs> um, so even the even is not immune. Um, and so the point on that side is really just truly wealth is so much more about knowledge and habit and not necessarily about income. But obviously this this audience, you have a very particular advantage because your, your incomes, all other things being equal, are quite a lot higher than, than the average in the UK population. And that's our key focus. But so if I, I, James knows I can be a bit messianic and sort of, you know, get on my soapbox about our message. But, and that's because actually, okay, so that's great. It's great for the individual. If you if you become financially literate, you massively increase your chance of being wealthy, but far more important than that per individual, because we all want to live in a nice society is what, Happens at the societal level, and certainly what could happen at the societal level if this stuff was more widespread. Because every single person who can take care of their personal finances, obviously, that's great for them, but it's great for the state because it means that there, you know, there are fewer dependents on the state. There's a bigger tax base. Really important, and I know this firsthand because I spend the last eight years um, working with life sciences companies, biotechnology companies. Those companies are really challenged in terms of raising money to do things like try to cure cancer, you know, run clinical trials, develop medical technologies, medical diagnostics. It's very, very hard to raise money for all sorts of innovative companies. And it always has been, particularly in the UK, The, the Americans are a bit better than we are. But but if you had more people who are financially literate, more people who are investors, there'd be more capital available for those sorts of co- companies and for you know indeed companies that are doing anything that's of use and utility to humanity. And and very prosaically, but in, totally valid in my opinion, is that you know money problems cause stress and divorce and and people falling out arguments. You know, fifty percent of divorces cite money as the prime cause of the divorce. And so financially literate people are happier people. They're less stressed people. So if you add all of those things up, that, that getting this, you know, if, if we can in our small way make a million more people in the UK actually truly financially literate, um, that could make, pay huge dividends for British society. And, you know, the same can be said all over, the world, all over the world. And that's why we genuinely have a real sense of mission about this and why I'm willing to, you know, do calls like this at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, obviously. Um, it's, it's about a lot more than just money. And just quickly, you know, how do we deliver that mission? Well, I think most of you know this um, through my two books, uh, particularly the first one, because the second one is much more of a, a workbook. Um, and then, uh, excitingly, part of the reason I was able to go full-time on playing with Finance a year ago is because um, I got a two-book deal from our big publisher, and we're going to produce a, a teenager and young adult-focused version of How to Own the World because so many people have asked for it. You know, school teachers and university lecturers and uncles and aunts and grandparents have said, You know, your books, I really like your book, but it's a bit inaccessible for my 16-year-old daughter or whatever. Could you write one for for them? So we're doing that. And then I'm also um, just about put to bed uh, 115,000 words on a book called Our Future is Biotech, which goes to what I said in the last slide because i spent eight years working with biotech companies. And uh, I think we're fighting with one hand behind our back um, with these companies. They could be genuinely – these are technologies – that could be changing the world. And I, and I I would assume that many of you guys are more conversant with um, those sorts of, you know, any, any medical technologies, all the other things being called well, the many, because you've got the, you know, you, you've got the understanding to be, but I, I believe we're on the face of biotech and life sciences delivering some really amazing things, but the, the funding environment's really challenged. So I wanted to write a book about that to sort of set out in plain English finance, how exciting that sector is. Um, And so, you know, I think, you know, the rest of this, we've got a a website, we've got an online community, we've got a very defensive fund, which is a global multi-asset fund, and we're teetering on the brink of floating a company on the London stock market um, to invest in the biotech space, which is hopefully only a few days away from launching. Um, So, as I say, I've only about another 10, 12 slides, um, and I'll trot through them, but just to unpack what what my key focus is going to be in these slides is the fact that we're all about investing and not trading and that that, that, just how important the distinction that is, because I think investing is for everyone and trading actually for a very small minority of people. And I'll explain why I believe that. Um, And a a related corollary to that is we're all about ignoring the news. You know, one of the biggest rookie mistakes, you can, you can spot an amateur investor a mile away when they're constantly obsessed with what's in the news every day and how that may or may not impact their investments there is very little correlation between the news and financial market performance. And one of the biggest rookie mistakes, amateur mistakes, is constantly focusing on what what, um, financial indicators are doing, what the economy is doing, whether there's going to be a recession. You actually don't really need to think about any of that. And investment returns are negatively correlated with that. The more you think about that, the lower your investment returns are likely to be. And I'll explain that in a bit of detail. And, and as a sort of underpinning to all of that, human progress is the most important investment theme of all. And you know, if you like technological development, I'll explain that in some detail. But just to set the scene, um, firstly, uh, what I tend to do is ask some key questions and then talk about some really important bad news and then some countervailing good news. This is just what I tend to do in these presentations. So, uh, but happy to. I'm not sure I'll be able to hear you, but you can. You know. What does it I guess this room most of you will know what the average British salary is, roughly? Does anybody know? Shout. It's
1: usually
2: yeah, it's usually about 30 grand, um, depending on who you are. So um so now this is a bit of a movable feast because it kind of depends where interest rates and annuity rates are, but how much money do you need in your retirement pot to earn that let's call it thirty grand a year? risk-free you know from from a cash or a bond um, product that's paying you a yield with with if it's 30 grand yeah I mean that, that that's about right, right I mean it, it bought, to keep the massive if interest rates are one percent then every million pounds j- creates 10 grand of income right so actually if interest rates are one percent, then risk-free, you need three million pounds to generate 30 grand a year of income. Now, obviously that's slightly disingenuous because interest rates are higher and annuity rates are higher. But but broadly, you're talking about a large six-figure sum is, is what everybody in this country needs in order to be able to reliably pay themselves just the average income per annum in retirement. Now let's be clear, that's that's if, if you don't want to touch the capital. You, you've probably heard of a thing called drawdown, which means that you know if you do have a million pounds by the time you're 60, you can divide that. If you assume you live 40 years, you can divide it and, and take some money out each uh, to run it down to zero. But the, the far preferable thing to be in a position to do is to live on the money from your capital rather than destroy your capital. And then if you have children, for example, uh, leave the capital to them. And so, okay, so let's just say for the sake of mind, you need a large six-figure sum to be able to do that. How much does the average British person actually have at retirement nowadays not including their house like pension and liquid assets don't really know the answer to that james
0: real quick guys i've put together a special report for dentists entitled the seven costly and potentially disastrous mistakes dentists make whenever it comes to their finances most of the time dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening until they have their eyes opened and that is the purpose of this report you can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to wwwdentistinvestcom forward slash podcast report or alternatively you can download it using the link in the description this report details these seven most common issues however most importantly it also shows you how to fix them I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts.
2: So, the, so what, well, the, the answer is fifty thousand pounds, and it, and it's generally it's about seventy grand the average man has, and about ten grand the average woman has still today, even now. Um, obviously, because in a lot of families and a lot of couples, sort of traditionally men have run the money. And, and that's why women often, you know, if they lose a husband or whatever, they can end up in that terrible situation. So, you know, there's a huge this is this is why this is one of the biggest problems in the world, if you ask me. And certainly in British society is the disparity between what somebody needs to live a good retirement on. Um, and what the average person actually has. And this is really, you know, this is going to come home to roost in a horrible demographic bulge in the years ahead. And, you know, why should you care about that? Well, because of the bad news, because quite often, um, you know, I did a speaking event at Birmingham Uni Uni a few months ago, and and some of the um, students said to me, well, you know, the the government papers, there's a government pension. And, you know, unfortunately, the lesson of the last decade, two, three decades already is that, The government cannot afford to pay a living income to all of its retired population for a whole series of demographic reasons, which actually have nothing to do with politics. And it won't matter whether it's the Tories or Labour. It's just a mathematical inevitability because we were very enlightened. Britain introduced a pension system in 1909. We were the second country in the world to do that after the Germans. It was kind of our idea and their idea and the Dutch as well. And it was for over 70s at a time where average life expectancy was 47. Now, that number is skewed by infant mortality, but not that many people actually lived through to or through 70 years old. Only a handful of kind of, you know, pampered aristocrats. Most working class people didn't make it anywhere near 70, particularly they spent a life working down the mines or, or on farms. And so we introduced a pension in 1909 for over 70s when that meant that there were an awful lot of workers paying into the system and very, very few over 70s taking out of the system, um, which was a great idea. Um, But in this day and age, life expectancy for most people born today is probably going to be a hundred or north of a hundred and certainly 80 or 90. And we've already seen that happen in the last 40 years. And so if you want to retire at 60 or dare we even hope 50 or 55, you need to have enough to fund four decades of your life. And sadly, governments literally can't afford that. It doesn't matter what your political position is. It's just a inevitability Japan is a really robust example of this because when they put their social security system in place at the end of the Second World War, there was something like 35 workers for every retiree. And already in Japan, there are now only two workers for every retiree. So, you know, this is this is a really, really bad thing. This is why I call it the bad news. I mean, I think this is a much, much bigger societal problem which is going to cause far more misery than than covid did or ukraine will you know unless it goes nuclear but let's pray it doesn't um and and it's far far too little talked about in the mainstream press and by people but it's coming it's coming down the pipe and it's going to make life for millions and millions of people really really horrible and, impo- and impoverished truly which is why we're very mission driven because this story needs to be told but thankfully truly there is some countervailing good news that can kind of rescue us. And I I split that into three parts. So again, I think James talks about this stuff. Many of you will be familiar with this, but even if you are familiar with it, people don't really understand the the sheer power of compounding, you know, compounding financially and also compounding in life, just getting better at at things gradually over time and how, you know, two friends in their early twenties who, who leave university with the same skills and earning potential and work, work ethic and fitness and diet habits, if one of them gets 1% better every month and the other doesn't and just stays the same, by the time they're 30 years old, you won't really notice much of a difference. One of them will have a slightly better job, um, might be slightly slimmer. Um, but by the time they're 60, truly one of them will be a millionaire and set for life and the other one will probably be in financial trouble and that and that that that's really insidious and sneaks up on you and but 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 if you make a if you take make use of compounding it's it's transformational and that's why we we talk this story so often and when, when i'm do, when i'm doing um journalist interviews or speaking to, to the general public who perhaps aren't quite as sophisticated as this audience one of the powerful ways i try to use to explain the sheer power of compound the impact of compounding is imagine that you can invest five thousand pounds the day your child is born or your Parents could, or a wealthy relative, just that you can put £5,000 into something the day your child's born. And just imagine that that returns 10% a year. Now, we can, you know, people can scoff at that number. We'll come on to justification for why 10% is not an unrealistic number. Well, how much would your child have on their 55th birthday with no further investment? So that's just £5,000 invested once by the time they can first legally retire at 55. And the answer to that question is £945,000 compounding at 10% a year or 1.2 million compounding at 0.83% a month, which is 10% divided by 12. Um, So, you know, because it's 5,000, 6,150 and so on and so on over 55 years with no further investment. So, so compounding, you know, compounding of very small amounts of money over very large amounts of time can make us all millionaires. Um, and so then to come on to, so, you know, how, why do we have a pensions crisis? Why are so many people impoverished? Why is the average person in Britain only have 50 grand? It's a, it's a problem of knowledge and habit, not really a problem of, in, of investing. Um, and the reason that 10% is actually not entirely ridiculous and unrealistic, I've put on this slide. So, I've put, you know, 10% will make us all millionaires. And how do you achieve that? Well, because, of as I said earlier, the import, most important investment theme in human history is human progress progress. And the American stock market from the 1st of January 1872 until the 31st of December last year averaged 9.23% per annum. So if you're just an investor in US shares, as simple as that, buying the market every month regularly, you you, you have a chance of being at or around those sorts of levels. And if you're lucky and you go through a period like the last 15 years, you'll do quite a lot better than that. You might be at 11 or 12%. And if you're unlucky and you might do one or 2% learn that if you you know, depending on what's happening historically, but broadly, you can aspire to high single digit or low double digit annual returns. So that's that 10% I talked about. And that is a function of technological progress and population growth. And, and you know, the last century has been all about tech and physics, if you like, so automotive, aviation, energy, um, you know, steel, Uh, shipping containers, shipping, buildings, um, and obviously most recently the internet, silicon, um, you know, um, semiconductors, the semiconductor industry, smartphones, mobile, internet, et cetera, et cetera. And that is what has fundamentally underpinned real wealth creation and equity returns, knocking on 10% for the last 100 plus years. And I think the next century, I think it's very easy to evidence the fact that the next century is going to be about biotech. Um, and will sus- will sustain or improve those double-digit, like the likelihood that the, the world's progress in terms of financial market progress will be 9, 10, 11, 12, even better percent because actually biotech exponentials are even more exponential than tech exponentials. So you can believe that wealth creation could actually now be get, going to get better than it's been in the last century. And the reason for that is because you create real economic value um, you know, this is where finance is, is very real um, and the upside is very real. You create economic value by solving problems, you're solving humanity's problems. That's how we create any value ultimately when you boil it down. Um, and most of our remaining problems as a species are problems of biological systems. So most obviously that's in the in the therapeutic setting, whether that's curing cancer or dementia or autism or obesity or diabetes or whatever else. But um, actually biotech is where the most exponential and interesting technology is coming from that will revolutionize and significantly improve our clean power generation technologies. So bio-coated photovoltaic cells, for example, alga culture, you know, being able to make aviation and automotive fuel from just adding enzymes to algae that we can grow in great fields out in the middle of the the oceans. These things will, will revolutionize the way we use fossil fuels. Um, and also revolutionising alg- agricultural productivity, you know, biodegradable packaging instead of plastics and single-use plastic bottles. All of those solutions to those problems are going to come from the biotech industry, in my considered opinion, having researched this for a while. And even improving processing power. So, computers are, are binary computers still to this day. All of our chips are zeros and ones, and that's been the te- that's been the technological paradigm for the last century. And we're bumping up at the limits of physics in terms of our ability to to make chips more powerful. Um, And the solution for that is biological computers, is DNA-based computers. Um, And indeed, you'll have heard of quantum computers, which is kind of related to that. But that could be a step change in the intelligence and processing power of our computers, and that will generate real wealth. And then the final bit, the third piece of good news, which sort of is the antidote to the bad news about how screwed government finances are and how poorly most people legislate for their financial future is that this isn't that hard. And this is where I'm going to come on to the investing versus trading piece. Investing is not that hard. And I always say, you know, that investing is no harder than learning how to drive a car. And it's crazy that you go to the average person and, and, you know, say, do you think it's, it's, is it should most people learn how to drive a car? Is it normal to learn how to drive a car? I mean what does everybody in the room think you know 90 plus percent of people will say yes right it's it's a pretty normal thing to learn how to drive a car it takes no longer to learn how to drive your finances in terms of being an effective um investor and making those sorts of high single digit or low double digit returns i talked about on the last couple of slides but nobody does it which and 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 people say oh well you know financial markets that's for rich people and that gets correlation and causality the wrong way around because financial markets are not for rich people. It's just that people who learn about financial markets are much, much likely more likely to be rich. You know, the richest 1% of people in the world nowadays are in the main, the most financially literate 1% of the people in the world. And that's in large part to do with compounding. Um, so all you need to do to achieve that is to is to own the world, which is why my book's called how to own the world to capture that human progress and be as close to that nine, 10, whatever percent you can each year. And in this era of, of inflation, because of all the money creation of the last five decades, to own inflation. And there are ways that you can benefit from the fact that we are in an inflationary in era and do better than other people, whether that's property or potentially crypto or gold, which I, I favor because I think it's the easiest thing. Um, and then the only other thing you need to think about in terms of a very elegant approach to investing to make investing easy and automated is that you need to be conscious of your age and stage because and so we talk about 100 minus your age so if, if 100 minus your age just tells you if you subtract your age from 100 it tells you what percentage of your monthly investments should be in notionally risky things and what percentage should be in defensive things so and but where risky might mean uh, equities for example rather than cash or bonds or gold And so, you know, if you're 30, you should probably have 70% in the market and 30% in defensive stuff. And if you're 70, you should probably have 70% in defensive stuff and 30% in aggressive stuff. And the reason for that is because if you're 30 and you've got 10,000 pounds, because you've saved a few quid in your twenties working in a bar or whatever you might be doing, and there's a 50% correction in volatile assets, like the stock market, which happens every 10 years or so in the stock market, you've gone from 10 grand to five grand, which is annoying. But you have the rest of your life to to benefit from those returns, the stock market affords and build back up. Um, and, you know, five grand isn't actually that much in the grand scheme of thing, things, whereas if you're 60 and you've done this for a lifetime and you've got to, let's say, a million pounds because you're well, you know, you're a dentist, for example, and you've been sensible and you've um, invested each month into sensible things if you lose 50% in the same in exactly the same market crash scenario of a 50% correction and this is what happened in 07 08 09 and 99 2000 the 30 year old goes from 10 grand to 5 grand you go from a million to 500 grand and obviously that is a very very different problem with very different consequences for your life than the 50 the 30 year old losing 50%. so that's why you need to think about 100 minus your age and if you like if there's a one size fits all panacea approach to investment it's just to understand all this stuff and think about your age. And, and I do that in five-year chunks because you don't need to finesse it any more than that. You could probably do it in 10-year chunks, to be honest. And, you know, it then, so it's, it's quite easy to do this. And it's quite easy to build very significant sums and sums that are big enough to have a very comfortable life and a comfortable retirement. But nobody's doing it because the very, very small minority of people care about this stuff, think about this stuff, learn about anything that we've just covered in the last few slides. And I think that that is quite literally one of the greatest tragedies of our time. Uh, you know, and I've said it's probably one of the biggest problems of our time in terms of the aggregate human misery caused um, both for individuals and for innovative companies who can, you know, do all these wonderful innovative things and for society as a whole. Um, and so taking all of that on board, you know, I think it's worth just taking a step back and say, well, what's the, what is all the point of me bleating away? What, what's the point of all of this? It's very simply, to get to the point where if you take this information on board, start with the end in mind, you can live well on the returns generated by your money, not the returns generated by your work. So, you know, and your money is infinitely more scalable than the hours you have in any given day, week, month, whatever. And and I think it's, you know, we too seldom in our society, take a step back and think just how empowering an idea it is that that is even possible. Because 99% Plus of the human beings ever born in history, it wasn't, it wasn't possible for them to do that because the fundamental technology of financial markets didn't exist. Um, you couldn't aspire to just stop working and live on financial markets and on your investments and dividends and whatever else. Um, and you know Thomas Hobbes, a British political philosopher famously in his book Leviathan, described most human existence as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And the financial markets and knowledge of investment can turn that on its head and actually make life really secure and abundant for billions of people. Um, So, but, you know, as I say, for those who are willing to engage and learn and become confident in in understanding financial markets, which too few people do, and, you know, we're very mission driven to try and, because I genuinely see this as a silver bullet for humanity. I mean, you could say society, but actually it's much bigger than that. The more people understand this stuff, the better a society will live in, the happier and wealthier and more secure and abundant more people will be. So it's all about, you know, what what do you actually do, brass tacks? Well, what what is owning the world? Well, uh, the richest and smartest people have done this for centuries. And that includes the Rothschild family, Harvard University, Yale, you know, all the Ivy League colleges in America, all their endowments, Oxford University, Cambridge University. And what is that? Well, it's actually really simple. And this is when I talk about investing being simple, it just means you need to own, ensure that you own most major asset classes. And so, you know, the simplest ones of those are cash or bonds, property, real estate, shares and commodities. And if you like crypto, and we can perhaps have a Q&A about my thoughts on crypto, but I just think crypto is sort of unproven at the moment. Um, and there's a lot more water under the bridge. And it, to me, it looks a lot like the dot-com uh, boom in 99. Everybody knew the internet was going to change the world, but that didn't stop, stop 90% of internet companies that existed in 99 going to zero. And you know maybe crypto and blockchain is going to change the world, but for all we know, Bitcoin could be the next Nokia. You know Nokia was a $200 billion company in 2000, and then it got destroyed by Apple. <laughs> and so was Motorola, Siemens, and so was Ericsson, and now they're all tiny companies. Um, and, and that could the same might be true of Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I just think we're too early in the cycle to have any confidence about what crypto might do. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't at least contemplate it as one of those major asset classes for sure. Just with a weather eye on, on the fact that it's fundamentally riskier than the other ones, um, in, my, in my opinion. And then so it's own all major asset class in almost geographical regions. And the easiest thing to think about there is just the US, Europe and Asia, which is pretty easy to do. And crucially, invest every month from as soon as you can afford to do that until the day you have enough to live on, which actually can happen. Best case, that'll take 20 years if you're quite a high earner. Um, But, you know, it's amazing how quickly, you know, I'm 47 now. So 22 years ago, I was 25. I guess I probably started investing when I was 23. So it's, you know, well, it's more than 20 years now I've been investing. And and you know it's amazing if you actually do that how how those years just go by very quickly and it, you get a great result and then as I said earlier ignore the news um, so we're just going to talk about investing what I mean by investing versus trading and ignoring the news on the next couple of slides so you know I have this a lot one of my great frustrations about what I do is that and this is particularly true of millennials at the moment and particularly true of what given what's going on in crypto is how many people who've never thought about investment they don't know what an isa is they'd never engage with what their pension has uh you know they've just been like boring boring finance no not interested not interested in finance at all and then they wake up one day and get really really excited about forex trading or binary options trading or crypto trading and they go from to, to me that's like that's like somebody, a white belt in karate or judo, going and fighting black belts the first time they go to karate or judo lesson. And it's just, it's maddening. And, all, and it's particularly prevalent in young people who bypass all the key products that have got two centuries of track record of wealth generation to the most dangerous and risky approach to finance. Um, because trading is, no matter what anybody tells you, it's extremely hard to do it well. It takes years to become good. It takes many hours a week to do it properly um you know and and people who say oh you can i can teach you how to trade in five minutes a day they can treat trade in five minutes a day because they've been doing it for 20 years and practicing or at least you hope they have but anybody just starting off will not be able to do it in five minutes a day because it's you know you're you're learning the ropes on something that's quite difficult i mean i always say that trading is roughly uh, in it's certainly an a levels worth of work and to do it really well it's probably a degrees worth of work and so. And, and it's often quite stressful. You know, even if you know what you're doing, you know how to use stop losses. It's time consuming, it's stressful. And finally, it's, it, you know, this is why I, f- I feel particularly strongly about sort of 30 year olds who might have three grand of savings, spending two grand on some crypto or trading guru to teach them how to trade. Because tr- the key thing about trading, what really makes trading successful in absolute terms is trading quite a large amount of capital with a low risk. So if you've got a hundred thousand pounds and you only want to make two or three percent a month by using various trading techniques, you'll at least be making two or three grand a month and compounding up. But if you've got two grand, you'd probably better off spending your time on any number of other things, which would be more valuable to you than sitting around staring at screens. And I feel, as you can probably tell, I feel quite strongly about that. Um, And as I say, don't be a white belt fighting black belts. And what we're all about, what our business is all about it, you know, trading, don't get me wrong, if you are wealthy, you've got time on your hands, you're willing to engage and spend time on it. Trading is can be very good. I've done lots of trading in my life. I don't at the moment, because I'm too busy, but, but it's not something that, you know, 28 year olds should be doing before they've done investing. Trading is for a small minority of people. Investing is for everyone. And it's a tragedy that relatively few people invest too few people, in my opinion, because it's much simpler. It has a much higher probability of long-run success and actually making you a significant amount of money by the time you want to retire. And that that time can be quite early if you do it well. It's probably 90% admin and 10% asset selection. It, you know, once you've got the habit of investing every month into something sensible, it almost doesn't matter what you buy within reason. I mean, obviously it does, but it's much more important that you form the habit and actually taking the bull by the horns and sort of this out. And crucially, a global multi-asset approach to investing and own the world approach investment means you can sleep at night and you can have real confidence that what you're doing is the right thing rather than having this as so many people do you know finance is this horrible job that hangs over them for years and they stress about it and they don't know what to do and they don't know how to engage with it this approach removes all of that and makes it very low stress um and just there's a quote there on the right hand side from john Stepek, who um used to be the editor of money week and he's moved to bloomberg now saying there are many roads to ruin in the market, some of them longer than others, but one, that basically, a surefire way to have low returns is to set out as a buy and hold investor, i.e. an investor, and then try to turn into a market timer at times like these. That's how, that's how you'll have lower returns. And just to, um, I'll unpack that um, on the next slide, but just before we do, so why is it really important to ignore the news, which is all part of my point about investing. Investing is something you do regularly every month. It's about admin. You do it over a long period of time and you'll have a large amount of money. Um, and in doing that, you must ignore the news. Um, as I said at the beginning of the presentation. And why is that? Because of a thing called the availability heuristic. And that is um, a cognitive bias established by, you know, psychologists. so basically news is about things that happen, not things that don't happen. Human beings focus on things that happen, not things that don't happen. And, and that sounds a bit ridiculous, but it's important because it's not newsworthy that the, that the world economy's grown from kind of 35 trillion US dollars of aggregate GDP to 100 trillion of aggregate GDP in the last 20 or 30 years because it's gradual and it happens over time. That's that's not a news story. A crash, a stock market crash, is a news story. And you know, so in the, in the last three years, there's been endless coverage of COVID and endless coverage of Ukraine this year. But there's never a headline that says that the uk stock market has created a trillion pounds of value in the last well since 2009 or as i say the world economy's grown massively in the last 15 20 years because of the availability heuristic and because um editors like to say if it bleeds it leads our media truly focus 99 plus percent of their attention on the 0.1 of bad things that happen in the world and that's really relevant to investment because, I mean, if you go to the pub this afternoon and talk to some random people in a pub that you might meet and say, what are your, what's your first thoughts on the stock market? The, the word that most people commonly associate with the stock market is that it's risky. And the reason that they think that, they think stock market investment is risky, is because of this. Because the, the only time the newspapers ever, ever talk about the stock market is when it crashes. Um, and that gives everybody a very, very full sense of the merit of long run investment. Um, And then a couple of quotes on the right hand side there, but, you know, basically making that point and particularly Bill Clinton saying, follow the trend lines, not the headlines. And the trend line, the most important trend line is human progress and the fact that that will deliver you really good returns. So you'll be relieved to hear I'm two slides from the end now, guys. So you, you can, you can have a break from me bleating away at you very shortly. But, um, so what does all that mean for investment? Well, as I said earlier, you know, from 1872 until December of last year, the S&P, the biggest in, you know, stock market index in the world, has done north of 9%. And that would be enough to make you a millionaire over 20 to 40 years of steady investing with pretty small numbers, actually. Um, and I can't remember the stats, but a couple maxing their ISA can become a millionaire at those sorts of rates of return in uh, it's eight or nine or 10 years. It's not very long, actually. Um, but nobody's making those returns because of the invest- investing and trading and ignoring the news points I made. Most investors are making about 5%. The reason is that because they don't ignore the news, they don't automate, they don't stick to their guns, they sell at um, bottoms and they buy at tops because they're they're always constantly trying to time the market. And if you time the market, you reduce on average your potential annual returns by about 4%. And over a lifetime of investing, that has a massive impact on your ability to become wealthy. Um, which is why I'm really, really stressed this point about ignoring the news and regular investment over a lifetime. And then the other point is that so that's investors, but actually a very small percentage of the population are investors. Something like only 10 percent of people knowingly invest in the stock market without, you know, every, a lot of people are investing in the stock market through their pension. But very few people actually knowingly do it thoughtfully. So most people, particularly in Britain, where financial literacy is particularly bad, and most people never learn about any of this stuff, most people are making as little as 2% because they're in a cash ISA. They're so frightened because of the news and because of listening to the news. And Oh, you know, everybody always comes on to me and says, you know, I loved your book. It's great. I'm wanting to invest. Is now a good time because of Ukraine, COVID, Libyan refugee crisis, you know, Syria. There is always a reason for people to want to not invest. And the answer is always ignore all that and invest from the best time to invest is always right now and for the rest of your life and ignore all that nonsense. And, but so most people don't do that. Most people are in cash, in a cash ice or whatever, because they're so fearful of investment, they only ever hold cash. And particularly with, int- with inflation at 10%, you know, you real, you are, if, it, if inflation is at 10% and interest rates at 2%, you're losing 8% of real wealth every year. Um, And and that's the position that so many people are in, which is why so many people are struggling, cost of living crisis, finding it difficult financially without really understanding why. Because, as John Maynard Keynes said, not one man in a million truly understands inflation. I think that's probably a little bit punchy. It's probably more than 66 people in this country who understand inflation, but not that many. who really understand it properly and really think in in this way. Um, And, you know, very few of our politicians, for sure, certainly not Liz Truss, has demonstrated in the last few weeks, um, but, you know, neither did Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown sold our gold reserves at an all time low. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what stripe of government there. Most politicians are very, very financially illiterate, and, and and indeed, so are most of our or many of our mainstream journalists, because I very seldom see this stuff discussed in the press. Um, but, you know, the antidote to that is to know that investing is crucial for everyone and investing regularly each month over time will get you a great result. So just to summarise. I love that quote on the right hand side, um, which is blocked by this little window, but it's in terms of this idea about human progress. Thomas Babington Macaulay, a Victorian sort of political philosopher, said, by what principle is it that when we see nothing but improvement behind us, we are to expect nothing but deterioration before us? And so, you know, if you, if you believe in human progress, and you believe we're going to carry on getting wealthier and, um, you know, innovating and having magnificent new products. And and actually, a lot of that innovation is going to roll back environmental degradation and really sort out the world and sort, uh, sort all of our big intractable problems. Because I, I think we have exponential problems, but exponential problems have exponential solutions. That's a big part of what I've spent the last year writing about. If you believe all of that, all you need to do is own a wide, a good variety of most major assets in most major geographical regions focus on investing invest direct debit each month from the minute you can until the minute you've got a lot of money and be patient ignore believe in human progress ignore the news and that fundamental approach to such things unlike many others crucially it means you can be very relaxed about life and get a good night's sleep and have confidence in your future um and that um you'll be delighted to hear sorry it's slightly longer than i said but um that's, there you go, that's what I wanted to say and I'm delighted to be challenged and told I'm speaking nonsense and I'll answer any questions you might have.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew. That was extremely enlightening and I think we all owe Andrew a round of applause.
2: thanks for turning up despite repeating,
0: my friends.
2: Well, actually, James, I forgot to say, I meant to say at the beginning and I forgot. I'm really sorry I'm not in there in person because it is much better in person. But I, well, I'll I'll show you just for for amusement. <laughs> <I imagine>. <laughs> <laughs> so it's
0: just matter if it is not normally
2: that size, there is a, there's a underneath. <laughs> I I, met, my, I got back to my train station, my local train station, two Saturday nights ago. Um, actually, after a day where James and I had seen each other, this entrepreneurs of Brent in London. And um, the, the, the train as uh, the staff at my local station had managed to lock all of the exits from my train station. <laughs> so I was like, everybody was milling around trying to find a member of staff to unlock the side gate and let us out. And I was a, a, I basically, I, I thought I can jump over the fence, which I, I could do when I was 17 and 27. But apparently I can't do now. I'm 47. <laughs> so It's quite a painful uh, weekend last weekend. But anyway. That's why I'm not there with apologies.
0: Well, I'm super appreciative that you can come today virtually, um, given what happened. Let me thank you for that presentation and yeah, a lot of this stuff aligns with what we talk about on the finance and you can tell that
2: Andrew is one of the inspirations for me for the course. It's actually the very first book I read on finance. Has everybody read it? Oh wow, so, so you didn't need me to just waste 40 minutes of your time shouting. Oh, I can't imagine you. that, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> Anyway, has anybody got any questions that they they'd like to ask Andrew? Where do you get teams going for
1: the phone? Sorry, <laughs> just about what
2: The phone and the teens. Hang on, sorry, I, I, can't, uh, I, I can't see the questioner or hear her. Uh, just getting this microphone. Oh, Alright, yeah. yeah. Sorry about that?
1: So this is a small question, first. Um, can, can, can you hear already when I'm already... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an easy one to solve, Where
2: do you get the, uh, the, the teens from? Oh, um, well, we, have, we haven't delivered it to the publisher yet. Um, so it'll, it'll be published. I hope it'll be published about halfway through next year. Um, but it's, it's quite exciting. So I've written it with a seven... Well, sorry, they were 17 and 15 when we... 16 and 14 when we started on the journey, and they're now 18 and 16. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, and uh, Gaia's going off to university in the States and Yanni's actually just got a contract with the Premiership football team so that could be quite interesting. Um, uh, but but yeah, I've written it with two teens and it will be published next year, hopefully with some fanfare. And, you know, we've got um, a cartoonist drawing. It's quite, diff- it's, it's a lot, um, it, we're hoping it will be really palatable for teenagers and young adults because it's got lots of breakout boxes and explanations and definitions and, and sort of cartoons as well or, or cool hieroglyphics and pictures, um, rather than the rather dry version that you've all endured for adults. So sorry that's a very long answer, next year basically, give us six months.
1: Awesome,
0: thank you so much. Gareth? Hi Andrew, thanks for that. Um,
2: do, uh, a lot of the assumptions in these things um, are based on population growth continuing. Um, I do hear some whisperings of a slowdown in the rate of population growth, does that concern you in our lifetime or is that something Way off of no, no, because it's it's you're right. It will be one. You know what would be lovely is if, um, I mean you you obviously will be aware because it's interesting. A lot of people worry that population growth is going to explode upwards and just you know that's going to cause the end of the world and environmental degradation and war, famine and pestilence and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But actually, the smartest thinkers in the world, um people like Kevin Kelly who founded Wired magazine and lots lots others. Have identified that actually one of our challenges economically will be a decline in population probably probably from about two thousand and forty onwards it 's very hard to predict these things i, I don 't worry about that in terms of the economic paradigm because what it hopefully means is r- roughly now the average person in the world very very roughly and these numbers are hard to get accurately but has about ten thousand u s dollars a year so in the developed in the wealthiest countries in the world like Singapore or Switzerland. You know, it's 60 or seventy thousand dollars a year GDP per capita in the poorest countries in the world like Chad or you know Paraguay it's kind of between 500 and a thousand US dollars a year but across the whole world it's about, it's about1 10000 dollars and that number's been going up fabulously because of you know China and Indonesia and all these places that have been um, developing economically since the Second World War in particular. Um, wouldn't it be marvelous if 50 years from now there are four billion people in the world, And not because there's been a massive apocalypse, to be clear, just because there's been a gradual, you know, the replacement rate of children has not exceeded. You know, we're not growing exponentially anymore. And those four billion people all have a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar a year lifestyle. So so, you know, that that is a future that I think is eminently possible. I, I talk about being in a race between Mad Max and Star Trek quite a lot. And to me, that's a Star Trek outcome. You know, the Mad Max outcome is a dystopian horror show where we're all fighting over scarce water and riding around in souped up cars with, you know, whacking each other with chainsaws. But I think the much more I genuinely believe that population growth will start tailing off, which will be marvellous for fish consumption, agricultural degradation, you know, the, the Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. But that we will get better as a society at allocating and allocating on merit. Wealth, creating wealth and allocating wealth, and we'll all we'll have a smaller population of much wealthier people. And I think that will happen. So I, ho- I hope that answers your question. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Sorry,
1: thanks, Um So, um, sorry, back to me, um, so um, what do you think about um, what, what, the, the risk of actually uh, the government raising um,
2: inheritance tax and pensions? The government, being, sorry, I'm struggling with the government being able to tax
1: tax and pensions
2: inheritance tax and pensions I mean, yeah um well I'm a small government libertarian so my my basic position on all such things is the government do most things really badly and probably should do as few things as possible as a society um, so uh, but unfortunately our political system is it's like Winston Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government ever invented apart from all of the other ones, uh, which I always thought was quite amusing. Um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, I think, I think there's a risk that... Go- so Arge- you probably know Argentina nationalised private pensions in 2008. And I actually, that struck quite h- close to home to me because I've got quite a few kind of middle-class Argentinian friends just from when I lived in New York and they lived near me in New York and we all became mates. And you know their their parents and they had spent years diligently saving into private pension um, schemes, and overnight the government just took all the money. Can you imagine what that must feel like? I mean, just you know, after thirty years, um, and the government said that was for the greater good. Now, will that ever happen in Britain? Let's hope not. But um, you know, the bigger, the the more, the more tricky the state of the, the government's finances, the more there is a risk that those sorts of policies. Happen, so yeah sorry i'm probably not answering your question very well but i i think the less government takes from its populace the better because the, the private sector tends to drive far better outcomes and far more effective outcomes than the public sector in my based on the evidence of i think a couple of centuries of history with exceptions the government has to do law and order and the government has to do um the defense of the realm obviously But um, but but and, and But to protect yourself against the risk that that a future government of whichever stripe might either nationalize pensions or at least um, tax them much more heavily. Again, that's why I think you just have to be financially literate and make sure that you have a good mix of things in a good mix of places. So that you, you know, unlike a couple of my Argentinian friends' parents who literally just lost their life, their life's work overnight and have really struggled since, uh, you know, you have some stuff. It, you have different things in different places, and, and it, you're not. You don't have all your eggs in one basket. That's at risk of the government nicking it. <laughs> was I answering your question there, or was I answering my, the, the question I chose yeah. to hurt here? <laughs>
1: oh, yes. but yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Question over here, Adam. I, um, you, you talked about your new uh, biotech portfolio that
2: you said being going online, saying, um, if you were to want to invest in Own the world and biotech, what sort of um, what sort of split between the two of those would you think would be ideal? Uh, s- sadly, I genuinely can't answer that question because it's the the, the um, so per- personal financial. In order to answer that question, I'd need to know how big your mortgage is, how much debt you've got, what your attitude to risk is, whether you've got any kids, how much you earn, what your plans are, when you want to retire, how much you know you. you it's it's never appropriate if anybody ever, if, if anybody ever set, tells you uh, you know if you say to somebody i've got 100 grand and they tell you what to do with it you should run a mile but, <laughs> because they because they you know you have to know the granular detail of somebody's personal circumstances um and then i was gonna say can i give you no i, I wish i could i mean you know the, the, our new, our new, it, it, we're floating company on the London stock market. It is an investment company. So obviously all the money goes into the company and then that all that money goes out to be invested in. So it's like, like Scottish mortgage is investment trust, which many of you will know. Um, it is going to be a risk factor five out of seven. So it's, it's, it is notionally a risky product. So, you know, it's certainly don't put all of your money in it. That's for sure. Um, but, but, um, you know, it, it, it that those decisions about whether you think it's X percent or more than X percent, I'm afraid I, I can't, I can't give a steer on, um, but obviously, you know, do please. So the website's going to be cls, uk, just dot uk, And it will hopefully be up in lights in the next few days um and it will it has everything prospectus key investor document like all the legal documents and everything all all the risk factors saying run a mile don't invest in this which the government forces you to put on things like this obviously but yeah do have a look thank you for the question thank you thank you
1: any more questions we've got time behind you james thank you thank you so much uh i just wanted to see a big thing because i mean what you're saying is it is really simple don't listen to the news just automate it and invest in, and forget about it and i think that's really sound advice but it's really bloody hard to do it's, <laughs> just, just, it's, it's hilarious because it is really hard to do but something that i've in my parents migrants really financially Ill- illiterate and as soon as i started to learn about finance it really opened my mind, and I was like, "Why the fuck did I never talk about this?" <laughs> so I turned forty this year, and it's only during the last sort of four or five years I've come into money and, and, and sort of had that onus to learn. And my question really is, and it's great to hear that. Like, mentioned you're coming out with a book for children and and the teenagers, because that's where the education sh- we should be trying to uh, educate our youngsters so they, they grow up better. So how? And the book, but how can we, how do you see we can be better at educating our youngers? Hopefully, I'll be able to educate my kids, but you as know, individuals, you've got this book, but how can we get it into the schools, educate them more publicly about the importance of saving and understanding the beauty and the wonder of compounding?
2: Well, it's a great question, and it is genuinely a mission of ours. I mean, for, for, in a small way, I, I went to Birmingham. I went to Birmingham University, right? And I went back to Birmingham University in February, and March of this year, and presented to quite a big group of students in the, the you know, the old big hall in Birmingham. And, and I hope that I'll go back next year and present it even more because I was a bit of an unknown. I'm like, who's this? You know, boring bloke from the city who's coming back who was here before I was born. <laughs> it's a bit freaky to realize it wasn't quite. But you know, 90, ninety-seven, I left Birmingham. Um, and I've done a bunch of secondary school assemblies, um, and so for my for the, the answer to the question for my own part is, if if I do things right and things go well, um, and and my profile raises off the back of this IPO, we're doing everything else. You can be assured, and obviously with the publication of the book for teenagers next year, we're we're hoping that there's a chance of a collaboration with the Premier League, um, because you know, um, yeah, uh, the, the the teenager who helped co write it is. is Anyway, he's got a um, what's it called a academy contract with one of the Premiership teams, but he may become a fully fledged player. And they're very concerned about financial literacy amongst their players for the reasons I talked about earlier, and lots of young players earning far too much money and not not doing the right thing with it. Um, we've also got potentially got a co- collaboration with the Footsie, uh, the Financial Times financial literacy inclusion campaign, the FT Flick FLIC, which is worth a look, and the FT are putting a lot of money into that and trying to spread, you know, t- spreading financial literacy amongst uh, younger folks, secondary school kids in particular, is one of their core focuses. Um, and I just think, uh, you know, o- over time, you know, we're we're a small stone in the pond, right, our business, and we've got an audience of X, you know, it's, well, it's about 14,000 in our email list and a bit more on social and whatever else, and that's growing, and we're about to start spending money on advertising. But... I do think that these, I like to think that a lot of these ideas are so kind of compelling. I mean, you guys are all sitting here on a Saturday morning. and We're having this conversation, right? I think there's a lot more of it. There are a lot of groups out there in the world. It's becoming more ubiquitous. People are more interested. Millennials are more interested. And in terms of how you actually talk to your kids, I think, I think the key thing really beyond everything else is just say, look, cause I think one of the biggest problems with kids is they get really excited about like crypto. They want to mine crypto and they want to do trendy stuff. They want to play they want to get paid for playing video games, right? They want to—they don't want to invest in like the S&P 500. What's that dad? That's boring, right? But if you could just, if all of us can somehow just explain to our kids, well, just do this thing, this really boring, simple thing with this small amount of your money forever from now. And just trust me, just do that. Then you can do whatever you want with the crypto and the whiz bang and the whatever, with the rest of what you do, but just do this little small thing with five to 10% of your money from now and do that for the rest of your life. And we've, if we can all convince our kids to do that. And, you know, indeed, I mean, obviously I put um, money into my kids' junior ices every year, right? And, I mean, <laughs> one of my friends, a fund manager, and he's quite, a, he's quite a clever guy. He's been putting the max of the junior ISAs into his kids' ices. They are six and three and between them, they've got something like literally like a large six-figure sum in their eyes because he's, he's bought like two or three companies that are up like 20 X. It's just, I mean, he's like, he's complete luck and he smashed the lights out, but you know, those kids are going to wake up on their 18th birthday and have like I don't know, by then three or 400 grand in their, in their junior. <laughs> and and uh, to be clear, he's only investing nine grand a year or whatever it used to be four and a bit grand a year for the first year or whatever. But, um, sorry, that's a bit of a spurious example, but I think if we, if we all invest a little bit for our kids every month, even at market rates of return, you know, I, I contributed an article to the mirror a few years ago called how to give your 18 year old 200,000 pounds on their 18th birthday. And, and the argument there was just like, you max their junior ISA every year and you make market returns and a bit and they might have 200 grand on their 18th birthday. Of course, then you've got to stop them from spending it on whatever 18 year olds want to spend it on, um, cars, clothes, or whatever. But anyway, sorry, that was a typically long and rambly answer, but I hope it was. That's cool, thank you so much, Andrew. Guys, super, super, super
0: grateful that Andrew can join us today, massive round of applause.
2: A massive honour to be asked, mate. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you soon. No, is there no other questions. One more.
1: Sorry. Yeah. One. Uh, thank you again, Andrew, for your presentation. This is somebody who knows it's important to be financially literate, but not quite there yet. So, in the past, I've looked at investing in, you know, human progress but I've done it to buy shares in my trading ISA account, whereas you mentioned invest in the assets and not to trade. What's the difference in what What am I doing there? Because I thought I was investing, so just- you- but I'm actually I'm just buying share shares. It and looking to trade when it
2: does better, and I want to sell. So wait, did you invest in single shares? Like, did you choose to invest in Apple or or? or- how, did, how what were you investing in? The biotechnology, yes. Uh, but yeah, so no, so it's all about pots and wh- everything I've talked about today is that is the first most fundamental pot. Which let's say you can save and invest ten percent of what you earn every month, right? That's the most important part. That if everybody does a half decent job with that from the age of thirty to the age of sixty, they will do very well, right? Just trying to make close to market returns and save ten percent of your income every month particularly if you're a professional where your income might be thirty grand at thirty and a hundred grand at sixty right or whatever and you're on a journey a trajectory where your income goes up um so what I'm talking about here is is the part that's not that's not about single stocks and is the you know invest not trade side of things um because to be clear i think single stock investment choosing single companies is a is basically a trading activity not an investing activity unless you know because to do that successfully, you have to really understand what an EV EBITDA ratio is, or a PE ratio, or a return on capital employed, or a return on invested capital, or you need to know what the management are doing. you need to know whether the hedge funds are shorting the shares. You know, in my second book, I produced a big long laundry list of things, things you should know and understand before you ever invest in a single share, right? What I'm talking about in terms of owning human progress, which I've written in my second book in live on less invest the rest is all you need to do is own a big index, and whether that's the S&P 500, which is the big American one, or probably more helpfully for the next 20 or 30 years, because who knows, you know, America's been the dominant hegemonic power for the last 80 years since the end of the Second World War. We don't know whether that will continue. So it's probably easier to own something called the MSCI world if you want to own the world, because that's that's the 1600 biggest companies in the developed world. There's the MSCI All World, which is three thousand plus companies, which includes a lot of developing world uh, companies. And you know, we don't know the next Apple might be a Brazilian company or an Indian company or an Australian company, right? I mean, we don't know whether that American exceptionalism will continue. But that having been said, the S and P 500, a lot of the earnings of companies in the S and P 500 are global, right? Because Apple obviously sells a lot of iPhones outside of the states. And Exxon sells a lot of oil outside of the States and Ford sells a lot of cars outside of the States. So the S&P 500 or the MSCI world give you the, the equity exposure to owning the world. And, you know, make you're the proud owner of hundreds of companies if you buy either of those things, right? So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about will this company, will Apple go up or down or sideways? You just own the market, which, as I said, is making 9%-ish a year for the last 130 years or whatever it is. Um, more than that, 150 years. Um, and But then the point, so that's the equities bit. But then it's really important to understand what to do about the real estate, the commodities, the cash and the bonds bit um, and the right ratios between those. Um, but that's that's not as difficult as it sounds. And, you know, if you, if you want to unpack it a bit more, have a look at, at my second book, Live on Less, Invest the Rest, which gives some sort of tangible ideas about how you think about that, particularly with that idea of 100 minus your age. But you know very very a lot of very wealthy people I mean if you're lucky enough to figure this stuff out when you're young and you have time on your side there is a very purist school of thought that just says all you ever need to do is buy the S&P 500 or the, or the MSC or the market the, you don't need to worry about commodities or because if you get because of equity drawdown if you get to a point where you've got quite a few million of you know dollars pounds euros whatever by the time you're say 60 and you stop working Even if there's a 50% correction, you know, let's say you have $4 million. Now you have $2 million, but your life costs you a hundred thousand dollars a year. Let's say it doesn't matter. And in the next few years, it will bounce, right? So for very wealthy people, you can just be an equity purist, but but that's actually relevant to relatively few people. Because if you get to a million, let's say in a 50% direct correction, if you're 63, and, and and then one year you've got a million and the next year you've got half a million. That's very stressful. And, you know, you're going to think, oh, my God, how am I going to fund the rest of my life and my dependents and everything else when I've just I'm down half a million. So that's why it's really important to have this weather on 100 minus your age to ensure that the closer you get to retirement, the more risk off you are. But, but you know, the younger you are, the more risk on you are. So sorry that it's all explained in my book. I know it sounds a bit complex and nuanced but it, it's it's not it, it's not that difficult and it's quite an elegant approach I think thank you I hope that helps top
0: stuff it certainly does Andrew once again thanks so much
2: for joining us today thank you guys, thanks guys I'll ring off then thanks James Speech thank to you so much my friend
0: good to see you speedy recovery we get you here in the flesh <laughs> next time yeah hell yeah
2: alright bye guys
0: in a bit my friend see you soon you know how you know that? oh, wow. Yeah, that's good. So, these things happen. Since Andrew on the screen, you, yeah. awesome. Andrew's on
1: the screen, you okay? Yeah. Andrew's on the screen, to be joined by the other Andrew. going to be assisting us there. Andrew, think, who's, who's, who's who's like Andrew, what, who's the guy?
2: I don't know, What I have to do if I've got a mic over this? and what we're looking forward to today. group. So the
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. Please search Dentists Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.